morning. We're going to play a little game this morning to get us started. We're already, I feel like we're already full energy this morning. That was a great time of worship. That was really exciting. Perfect song at the perfect time, I think, at the end there. It was great. We're going to play a little game here, though, to get started, keep the energy going. And I, I would imagine, I'm, I'm, I can almost guarantee that if I showed you a couple symbols, a couple pictures that are common in our culture today, that if you saw those pictures, you saw those symbols, immediately it would bring up or stir up a memory or some sort of emotion or feeling towards that thing. So the first picture I'm going to show you here is two of my favorites, two of my favorite symbols. Uh, I don't know how you feel when you see those symbols, but for me, I think about some great food. I think about a great atmosphere. I think of probably far, far too many calories uh, over the years that I've, I've put into my body. Uh, this next symbol is probably one that's familiar to a lot of us as well. Uh, this symbol um, probably stirs up some sort of emotion for many of us. Maybe that's uh, a time that you spent at camp. Maybe in a men's group or a women's group or just uh, dro dropping off your kids or your grandkids for a week and just the emotions that you experienced of, of that sadness of dropping them off and then the, the joy when you went and picked them up. Uh, for me and my family, this, every time I see this symbol, it just stirs up a lot of emotions because this place is so special to us. We are so blessed to have Camp Manawagon in our district. Uh, the next symbol here that I'm going to show you is a couple symbols. Um, I'm not sure what kind of emotion it'll bring up, but hopefully it brings up uh, some, so these symbols bring up some emotions of liberty, freedom, power, and authority over not just our country, but the world, really, right? If you've had the privilege of playing a sport, I'm going to specifically talk about football this morning. I played football for many years. If you've played football or you've been around football, you coached football, just been a spectator of football, you know there's some symbols within the game of football that, that evoke authority, and you have to listen to them. One of those is this guy. Whether you're a coach or you're an official, if you carry around one of these whistles, right, the, the players know who's in charge. They know that when the whistle blows, you need to listen up, stop what you're doing, figure out what's going on, right? There's some other things that in the game of football, and I've had the a privilege of officiating football for the last 12 years. I don't know how many of you know that about me, but I, I officiate for the PIAA. I love it. I enjoy it. I get to stay around the game. Um, so just simply putting on this cap with some black cap with white stripes, put on a nice shirt, pair of pants to match, and everybody on that field knows that I'm in charge. Now, sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong. I spend a lot of time and energy throughout the year trying to get it right. But sometimes we do get it wrong. But it doesn't matter because whatever happens on that field, everybody knows that I'm in charge. I'm the authority. And if you just happen to see one of these guys come out on the field, you know that something bad has happened, right? I've been waiting 12 years to be able to do that on this stage, right? <laughs> but what I've noticed over the years is the setting for these things is really important. The setting for this flag is really important. I've, I've tried. We've had staff meetings, and I didn't agree with Pastor Mark, and I just throw out a flag, and he looks at me like I'm crazy. Like, it just doesn't work in that setting, I've, you know, my, my kids, when they get um, disruptive or they're not listening to dad, I throw a flag at their feet, they're, not gonna, they're just going to think I'm goofy. Like, what's going on with this guy, right? 
So we learn that, yeah, these things are really important. These symbols of authority are really important, but also the setting in which they're placed in is really important too. What we've learned already, what we're quickly learning in our study in the Gospel of John is that Jesus used symbols all the time throughout his ministry. Uh, in every little detail, if you really study Jesus' ministry, those three years, every little detail was planned out perfectly and precisely. He knew exactly what he was doing. And some of these things now in 2024, 2,000 years later, they may seem a little meaningless to us. But man, they spoke to the Jewish people, to the community. Uh, last week, pa Pastor Mark explained to us the significance of those jugs that Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, we would just overlook that detail and wouldn't think anything of it, but for those Jewish people, it was great significance that he used those clay jars. The people who had the opportunity to witness that knew that what he was saying is, I am going to be taking the place of these jars. I'm going to be the cleansing that you need. Jesus was such a good teacher. He was so strategic, so methodical in everything he did in his ministry. And he truly was a great teacher. He held all the qualities of a great teacher. He was extremely patient with the Jews. He's extremely patient with us today. He taught with great love and compassion for them in their eternity. And he used different ways and strategies to teach the same subject matter. I remember when I was uh, studying public speaking in college, I remember one of the professors I had always kind of beat this into us that we needed to tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And I, admittedly, I don't remember a lot of what I was taught in college, but that's one of the strategies that stuck with me in teaching people is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. And they'll remember. And God uses the same strategy to help us understand everything we need to understand about him. He used prophets in the Old Testament to foretell his coming and what was to come. And then Jesus came, and he explained exactly who he was. He made it very simple for us to understand why he was here, what he was here for. And then the rest of the New Testament goes on to explain why Jesus came, why you have a need for a Savior, and how can we make more disciples until his return. He told us what was going to happen. He came, and then he told us about himself. He used symbols and reminders of prophecy to, to tell exactly who he was, the Son of God, the Messiah, the I Am. He referenced Scripture and speech. His actions made people reflect and think about Old Testament prophecy. And then he fulfilled Scripture in everything he did. It's just amazing, incredible, the more we study Jesus, how he accomplished what he accomplished in just a short period of time. So I want us to pick up in our study in John chapter 2. Now I'm going to be reading from the NIV most of the time this morning. We will have some parts in the uh, New Living Translation, uh, Translation on the screen. But we're going to pick up in John chapter 2 starting in verse 12. Exactly where we left off. John 2, 12 says, After he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, there they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of the, off from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold do- doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. I want to break down what we read here this morning. Now, there's four accounts in the Gospels of Jesus cleansing the temple. And if you look at them at first glance, you would read them and say they seem contradictory to one another. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they describe this event towards the end of Jesus' ministry, right before he goes to the cross. They describe this event. But the account that we just read in the book of John described this event as the first public proclamation that he was the Messiah. So how could the same event be witnessed by different people be described so differently or at different times of period? And many would say that this gives proof that the Bible is fallible, it's inaccurate, But we can't make assumptions immediately about what we just read in Scripture until we study it carefully. If you study all four of these accounts in the Gospels, as I did this week, you will notice there's considerably different language in all four accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a different verbiage, a different description of these events than what we just read in John. In fact, John's account is the only account where the Jewish leaders asked Jesus for a sign to prove his authority. And the other three accounts that you'll read, they were, they were tired of Jesus. In fact, they were looking for a way to kill Jesus. In John's account, we just read, they're, they're questioning, what authority do you have to do these actions? It's as, it's as if he just showed up on the scene, and that's because he did. If this event did, in fact, happen towards the end of Jesus' ministry, why would they be asking for a sign? They've seen three years' worth of signs, and they're sick of it. In fact, Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's uh, cleansing, uh, this, this story of Jesus cleansing the temple did, in fact, happen towards the end of his ministry. So if you take just a little bit of time to study and compare these four accounts, you'll probably come to the conclusion that most biblical scholars did, and that I did this week, and that these are two separate events. Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, cleansed the temple. That's how he announced he was here. That's how he announced he was the Messiah. He announced his authority. And then as if to remind them of that authority, he did the same thing right before he went to the cross. They hadn't learned their lesson in three years, obviously. 
So I think it's important for us as we continue in the study of John that we, we look at similar events that happened in the other three Gospels, and we just take a few minutes to compare them. And what you'll notice if you do that is there are some events that seem very similar, um, and that's because they are the same event. They're the same event that was described through the lens of four different people. But there's some events that sound really familiar, and they're actually two separate events. But if we're going to get a deeper understanding of the gospel, we've got to take time to do that. We can't make assumptions. We can't read part of the gospel, part of the Bible, and make assumptions about what Jesus was or who he was. We need to do our work. As we read through the book of John, it's really important that we understand that John, when he wrote his gospel, was focusing on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem where the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke focused on Jesus' Galilean ministry. So there are some events that took place that were similar, and some are the same events, and some are completely different events. At the beginning of our story today, Jesus and his disciples, they left that wedding. They took their brothers and their mother, and they left the wedding. They spent a few days in Capernaum, and then he wasted no time. Right? Somebody's going to figure out what I just did at that wedding. So he gets things kick-started pretty quick. He goes to the temple, and he knows that the, the Passover, is, it's time of Passover. He knows all these Jewish families are going to be coming in. And there's actually three festivals that Jewish people, by law, are required to go to Jerusalem. That's the feast, festival of Passover, the festival of Pentecost, and the festival of Tabernacles. And it just so happens in Jesus' perfect timing that it happens to be the festival of Passover. This was an annual celebration. If you read through the Old Testament, you know what happened with Passover. This was an annual celebration where the Jews remembered the time that God delivered them out of the hands of slavery from Egypt and, and spared their firstborn sons. So every Jewish family came to the temple. They were required to offer unblemished sacrifices to God. And if they didn't have them, fortunate for them, there was someone there that you could buy them from with a little small fee. And when it came to giving financial gifts to the temple, when you showed up, you couldn't just give pagan coins, but guess what? There just happened to be money exchangers as well, and they would charge a small fee. How convenient for these people. But Jesus knew what was really going on in the temple. He knew that these money exchangers and these, these marketeers, they were taking advantage of the Jewish people, and the church leaders were just letting it happen. So what a perfect time for him to show up on the scene to announce, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. He got everyone's attention. He starts flipping tables. Coins start flying. He released all the cattle and the sheep. He's making a huge scene. And I can't even imagine what's going through the minds of the disciples at this point. They're probably like, look, you need to slow down, settle down. We don't need all this attention on ourselves right now. But he, he got a kick started real quick. And he demanded in one brief moment that we just read, he demanded authority. He demanded authority from the leaders of the church. He demanded authority from the teachers of the law over life and death and over everyone's heart that experienced that that day. There's a lot to unpack in this short passage. 
as we study and read through it. So let's just start with a word of prayer before we unpack it. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. I just pray that you speak to our hearts now. I pray that there's somebody in this place or watching online that just needs to hear this message this morning. That's been my prayer this week. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a difficult, challenging week for many in our church family, and I just pray that you speak to those that are hurting this morning. Give them comfort. Give them joy in the word of God and who you are this morning and your authority. I pray these things in your name. Amen. If we look back and we go back to verse 14, we see that Jesus went into the temple courts. He found men selling cattle, sheep, doves, and others sitting there. And he made this whip. We're going to get to that in a minute, why that's so significant. He made this whip out of cords. He starts flipping over the tables and releasing all the cattle. And I want you to get an an accurate picture in your head. I have a picture here to show you on the screen of what the temple looked like, the temple court. This was not a small place. This was not like someone, you know, just coming through during church service and knocking over a few tables. And most people were actually already in the sanctuary listening to to the service already, and nobody really noticed. Everybody in the community, both Gentile and Jews, were collectively around this court. And it was a square courtyard that was about 230 feet by 230 feet. Okay, so if you picture that in your head, you know, a football field, since we're talking about football this morning, is about uh, 360 feet long if you include the end zones. So it's almost the size of that. It's just more square. This was a massive area. And it wouldn't have been just Jews in this area. It would have been Gentiles. In fact, the main purpose of the courtyard was for the Gentiles to have a place to worship because this was the last place they were allowed to go, the farthest place in the temple they were allowed. They weren't allowed to go any deeper within the temple. So the main place that the Gentiles had to worship God, these people had turned into a marketplace. And to some, maybe in 2023, Jesus' actions would seem like just a temper tantrum. You know, what's he doing? He's throwing over some tables, there's coins going flying. But the setting here is so important of what he is doing. The temple court is so important. It's a place for Jews and Gentiles. It's a place of worship for the Gentiles. And he did it when everybody in that community would have been gathering, and he knew that. They would have all returned to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. The disciples understood this immediately. They knew what he was doing. In fact, it says in Scripture that they remembered, they immediately thought of Psalm 69, where it says, for zeal for your house consumes me. That was their first thought. And obviously the church leaders, the Jewish leaders, knew what he was doing because immediately their response was, who gave you this authority to do this? They needed a sign. But what they didn't get was his very actions. What he was doing right there in that moment was the sign that he was the authority. He didn't leave any doubt for the onlookers that day that he was the authority as the Messiah. That's why he did what he did. Every little detail planned out. And maybe there were some Jews and Gentiles that weren't very versed on Masonic law or or prophecy or maybe even temple protocol. But Jesus made no doubt about what he was doing in that setting, in that place. Everybody was congregating, everybody was doing business, and he disrupted all of it. 
in one moment. And he grabbed, he grabbed some rope and he made this makeshift whip. And that is so significant, symbolic. I thought about that all week, what it must have been for him to do that. And not only is it a symbol of his upcoming crucifixion, but everybody that would have been in that temple courtyard would have seen that whip and knew what that meant because they were all too fully well aware and experienced with the Roman authority. This whip was not a weapon. It was a symbol. He's so clever. I mean, Peter oftentimes was found yielding a sword. If he wanted a weapon to clear the temple, he would have just borrowed a sword from Peter. That's not what he did. He made a whip, and he chased people out of the temple with it. And he said, I'm here. I don't care about this authority. I don't care about the church authority. I am the authority. I am the Messiah. And everybody that was witnessing that that day, they had a decision to make. They could either believe that, they could have faith and believe that he was, this man that just showed up as the Messiah, or they could respond like the Jewish leaders did with more questions and more demands. We need proof. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? I want to ask you, have you ever asked God that question? Have you ever asked God to say, show me a sign that you are who you say you are, that you're God. If you're God, save my marriage. If you're God, heal my loved one. If you're God, get me out of this financial mess that I put myself in. That's what these Jewish leaders were doing. I'm sure that's what many of us have done. This week was a very challenging week for many people in our church family this week. I think a lot of you are well aware of that. It was a challenging and difficult week for our community. A lot of loss this week. And it reminded me as I was preparing for this message, it reminded me of some difficult and challenging moments in my own life and how I responded to those things and whether I was like these temple leaders and demanded that Jesus show me a sign. In the time that I thought of that was most vivid was the time when my mom was sick a couple years ago. My mom was dying, and I was driving from here almost daily down to Hagerstown, which is about an hour and a half drive one way, just to go down there to look at her through a glass window in a hospital. I could talk to her on the phone, but she wasn't really responding. Sometimes she would nod her head. I was going down there praying with other people in our family and in our, in our church family down there, and I remember having this attitude towards God. I remember saying to God, you know, show me. Heal my mom. My mom was the spiritual leader of our home. She's the very reason that I know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus. She was the caretaker for my dad. We were not ready for her to go home. But as I took these long journeys back and forth, many times by myself, Sometimes my family went with me, but most of the time it was just me going back and forth. God was faithful in those moments to remind me of his authority. Whether it be a song that came on, whether it be a podcast I was listening to, he just reminded me of what I really needed. 
I didn't need proof. I had proof. I knew where my mom was going. I knew that he is the authority of, of life and death. He's authority of all things. And God just constantly reminded me of that over several weeks as I was driving back and forth. That what I really needed was just to trust him. That's it. It's one of the most painful experiences I've ever been through in life. But I am forever grateful for those car rides back and forth from here to Hagerstown because God drew me closer to him. He helped me understand that he knows everything, that he's in charge of everything, that he's the Messiah. And I I have all the proof I need of that. I know that my mom, I, I would never wish for her for a minute to come back from heaven to here. It's just a short painful season that I'm in that we're separated, but forever in the kingdom of God. God constantly reminded me that he's in charge. He's the authority, and all I needed was to trust him with that. In this passage in John, Jesus reminded these church leaders of the same thing. He said, you need another sign? I just gave you a sign. You're so ignorant. I just showed you that I'm the Messiah. You want another sign? Here's the next sign. Destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And no one knew that he was referring to himself. Not a single person, not even the disciples, understood what he was saying that day. But Jesus was, in that moment, claiming authority over life and death, heaven and hell. And no one understood it. I don't think he really said it for them. I think he was saying it for us 2,000 years later. These people couldn't possibly understand what he was saying. And that was because they were in the middle of a building project of their own. These Jews were in the middle of a building project that had already taken 46 years to get them to where they were. 46 years. Can you imagine that? I think we're on year like five of our building project, and it, it's extremely frustrating at times. We can become very impatient, but 46 years, and it still wasn't completed. This temple didn't get completed until about 64 AD, so they had about another 30 years to go. So they couldn't get past this fact that Jesus wasn't talking about a building, brick and mortar at all. He was talking about him. Destroy me, and I will be resurrected in three days. Not even his di- disciples could understand that. They, they had no idea that he was proclaiming victory over death. And they understood that he was proclaiming to be the Messiah. They get that. But to, to understand the death and the resurrection of Christ, they weren't there yet. That would take a little bit of time. As we read on in John, though, it says that after his death and resurrections, his disciples recalled what he had said that day. It must have been an aha moment for them, I can imagine. There's probably a lot of those as they started the church. Remember when Jesus said this? Now I get it. And it says that they believed everything that he said, everything that he did, everything about him. If you look towards the end of the story here, I want to look in verse 23. As we read the very end of this story, it says, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, 
For he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Many saw the miracles and they believed in him, but they did not truly believe in him. They could see what he was doing, but they didn't give him their heart. They didn't fully trust God. They were asking for more signs. I have the NLT version uh, on the screen here because I like what they wrote. He says, many began to trust in him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell them about, tell him about human nature, about the human heart, about what's in each person's heart. He knew that because Jesus is the authority of our hearts. He knows you better than anyone. He, he, you can't hide from him. You can't hide your thoughts from him or your true feelings, or your true trust. He knows if your words are just lip service. You may be able to fool people in your family, in your community, even in your church, but you can't fool Jesus. And that shouldn't make us afraid. That should give us great courage that he is with us, that he wants that close of a relationship with us, that he has our hearts. Jesus has the authority to offer us a completely new life, a changed heart, a fresh start, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love. Things that you can have access to freely by the grace of God. Did you ever wonder what made the disciples just a little bit different? Like, did you ever think about that? I've asked that question many times. Like, why did God choose these men? Why did Jesus choose these men to be his disciples? They were ordinary men. They were fishermen, tax collectors. A lot of people hated these men. But here's the key. The key is that God is the authority over our hearts. He knows your heart. He created your heart. Ephesians 2.8 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. What are you talking about? Why can't I take credit for this? I'm the one that believed in him, right? Why can't I get some credit for this? It's because Jesus knew your heart long before you were created. He created your heart. He crafted it. He knows everything about you. The minute you took your first breath, the, the time you first fell in love, and whether or not you're going to trust Jesus as your Savior. He knows the very exact minute, the second that that happens. Why did he choose these men? Because he knew their hearts. He chose them for a very specific purpose and a plan for the glory of his kingdom. And he chose you for a very specific purpose and a plan for the glory of his kingdom. Not everyone's path is the same. Not everyone's life experiences are the same. Not everyone's journey is the same. God took you on that journey for a purpose and a reason and a plan so he could bring more to him. You're in this place this morning for a reason. You're at Grace Fellowship Church for a reason this morning. Listen. Listen to the voice of authority. And just believe. Don't believe in yourself, but believe in God and believe that God created you with a unique purpose and a plan 
Believe that he can and will use you for his glory. Have faith in that. He is everything he said that he was. Everything. He's everything he showed us and told us. And he's coming back for us. We can have great faith in that. Great courage in that. We don't have to be afraid of this world. Because God is the authority of this world. These Jewish leaders saw everything that he did and they wanted more proof. Show us more signs. At the very end of his ministry, it still wasn't enough. They wanted rid of him. The Jewish leaders saw everything he was, but they didn't know who he really was. Are you making that same mistake this morning? Jesus knows your heart. Scripture says even the fallen angels, even Satan knows who Jesus is. He just chooses not to believe in him. He just chooses not to believe that he's the authority over him. Don't make that mistake. I think this week has been a painful reminder that this time on earth is very short. Praise God for that. We're going to be at the feet of God before we can blink an eye. Are you going to stand before him redeemed? Are you ready to meet him? The good news is you don't have to leave this place without being prepared. There's pastors in this room. There's people in this congregation that would love to pray with you and help you take that next step towards living a Jesus-centered life. It seems like every morning we've been having these conversations with people. God has been faithful to bring people into this place that need to have a personal relationship with God. And I'm so thankful for that. We witnessed that last week. 11 people in our church family. Satan's not going to roll over and take that lightly, but I don't care. He's not my authority. Jesus is my authority. And I'm going to live every second of every day for him. I'm going to keep fighting the battles for him. And as painful as this life is, I don't care. I'm going to work my tail off to make more disciples for him until he calls me home.